So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence in our midst, and we're just grateful, Lord, uh, for who you are and how uh, your word communicates to us your, your nature uh, and your character, which is very, very different uh, than the things that we've come to expect from our worldly leaders or even sometimes even from our church leaders. Your can be very different, uh, so comforting, so healing, full of redemption, second chances. Lord, as we come to your word today, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to this chapter 13 of, of John, and uh, from John chapter 13 through the beginning of 18, it represents maybe not even a day. You know, some would say just hours. John focuses on 13 through the beginning of 18. And it helps us to understand that, that John doesn't want us to miss who Jesus is and his heart to give his life for our life on the cross, which is 13 through uh, the beginning of 18. Sometimes it's called Jesus' passion. We celebrate 13 through, you know, the resurrection in just one week, but it's, you know, John, John just ca captures it in, in these chapters. And when you compare it to the first part of John, John 1 through 12, uh, What's the period of time that you, that's represented there? Three and a half years. It's all of Jesus' pub, public ministry takes place in, the, in 12 chapters, three and a half years. And then we come to, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, some of 18. Six chapters for just a few hours. And so John wants us to kind of soak in, if you would, just how much the Father loves us, how much out of that love he sent the Son to give up his life for us. And as the, that hymn that they sang and harmonized, like really just awesome, the wondrous cross, that, that true life and um, eternal life, and joy uh, flow not through position and power and prominence, which are the values of the world and sometimes can be the values of church, uh, churches, that, that true life and eternal life and joy and satisfaction of our life flow through the cross of Jesus Christ, our identification with him appropriating all that Jesus has done for us through faith because of his grace. And so it's just remarkable when we come to John chapter 13 and look at the emphasis John has and look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, and so when we harmonize the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus has sent his disciples ahead to prepare 
for this meal. We know that in John chapter 12, there was another dinner, another gathering of disciples. Matter of fact, there was Mary who had an act of service, an act of worship. And in John chapter 12, that meal and that fellowship was to prepare Jesus for his coming death on the cross. We come to John 13, now before the Feast of Passover, which would be Thursday, which we would celebrate as Monday Thursday, or, or that's where the Lord's Supper was instituted at the Passover. And you know, the Passover is a celebration of, of God bringing victory to the children of Israel and letting them uh, be released from Egypt out of the 10th plague, which was the death angel came and, and uh, the Lord said to take a spotless lamb and put the blood on, on your door frame. And when the death angel comes, he'll see the blood of the lamb, right? So all, that's, all of that is packaged as we move through the Old Testament and the New Testament to find its complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the, the lamb the Lamb of God. And so John begins to focus in on this. He says that now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. We've heard many times in the Gospel of John that Jesus would say that my hour has not come. And now what we see is the fulfillment that his hour has come. And not only that, Jesus knows that his hour has come. Jesus can see the plan of his Father. He knows both past and present and future. And you see that in the text, past, present, and future. Jesus knows all things. You can take a look at, say, verse 3, just the first two words. Jesus knowing. Then you could look at, say, uh, verse 10. Jesus said to them, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, but not every one of you is clean. Jesus knows the past. He knows the present. He knows all hearts. He knows what's going on inside a man's thought. He knows what they're going to do before they do it. And the takeaway for us is so important that all of that, Jesus knows past, present, future. He knows people's hearts. He knows what Judas is going to do. Matter of fact, and when we look at, I think it's John 6, verse 70 through 71, Jesus knew what he was going to do even before he did it. And all of that can be summed up in one word, sovereignty. That God is sovereign over all things. And the takeaway for us is because God is sovereign, I can trust him. And so when, when life makes me a little anxious, you ever been a little anxious? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Too much self-disclosure here from the pulpit. Um, you get a little melancholy. That's another way of saying you're depressed. <laughs> that... that that when worry creeps into my heart, I don't have to choose those things, even though 
they may present themselves to me because of situations, or, or, or I might have a, a personality that's, you know, predisposed to melancholy. Like, what's a good day for you, Conway? Oh, I just love a rainy day, and yeah, feeling a little sick, get a book, you know, and just, oh, oh. I remember when I was in Texas, you know. I was in Texas for like eight months, and I got depressed because there were no... There were no cloudy days. There was no rain. I would say, I would say to the guys that I was working with, I said, don't you miss rain and clouds? They go, Conway, you have a significant problem. You need to see the chaplain, you know? I can, I can choose not to give my heart to those things because God is in control of my life. And he works even the things that I, that I can't understand. And you're going to see here in the text that Peter doesn't understand what's going on. And, and according to some, you know, he's, he's the main guy. He doesn't get it. Great lesson when we look at this narrative is that God, is, God sees all things, knows all things. And what I love about the end... Of, of Romans, uh, Paul says this, to the only wise God, Sophos, meaning that he knows all things, both past, present, and future, and how everything interrelates, and he uses all of those things to bless his people and to bring glory to himself. And so when we read a narrative like this, it's on, on its surface, it's, oh, it's just a, it's not just a nice little story but you go a layer under and you come away with it knowing that there's nothing that comes into your life that God can't and doesn't have the disposition to work good because you are his child. And so we can take great confidence and courage in that in, in our day. As we move through the text, we see the second, say, profound takeaway is that not only is he sovereign, knows the past and in men's hearts and the motivations of our heart, but he loves us to the end. He loves us without, without limits. He loves us. Take a look at the text. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. That's Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, started in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. He says, Father, you've given them to me. <laughs> Many people say, well, who would want them? But, but we're gifts to Jesus. The Father's given us to him. And, and Jesus' great high priestly prayer is, Father, you've given them to me, and I'm going to keep them. They're mine, and I'm praying for them. Not only is Jesus sovereign, but it's not a sovereignty that, that is without emotion. It's not a sovereignty that's without 
compassion. It's not a sovereignty that is distant, but it's a sovereignty that loves us to the very end of time. And because of that, not only can, can I trust him, but I can have confidence in that I'm guarded and secure in all things and that no matter what the devil would throw at me, my victory is found in Jesus Christ. You say, you haven't even got to the foot washing yet. Oh yeah, that's, that's an amazing thing. But I think John wants us to know, uh, let me rephrase that. Jesus has chosen this time that as, as um, Mary of Bethany prepared Jesus for his burial, I, I think what's happening here is Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure. Letting them know that I'm in control. Letting them know that no matter what happens, like in 70 AD where Rome comes in and wipes out Jerusalem, no matter what happens, God is in control. He loves us and he's got a plan for our life. And sometimes life doesn't feel that way. It's like, like jumping out of a plane. It's like, all right, will the shoot work or not? We're still going to find out. And the testimony of Scripture is that, is that you're safe in his arms and he cares for you and he loves you and he's got a plan for your life. He loved his own who were in the world. I, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, he loves me, he's working, great point of maturity is that he loves me in the midst of those things. And in the midst of those things, he sanctifies me and shapes my heart and life to be more Christ-like. And so sometimes Christians, they like these, like, like the prayer in a can, you know? In the name! And that's true. But Christianity is not about magical prayers. Is about a God who entered our world and suffered and invites us to walk that same journey with him. Which gets to the next part of the narrative where when we harmonize the gospel accounts, we get a, we get a glimpse of what's going on. It's the Last Supper. It's the last Passover that Jesus would, would share with the disciples. And in Luke chapter 22, he gives us the backstory, which leads to this next little section of the text. God is sovereign. God loves us. He's going to show us a different way. And in Luke 22, they're ready to um, celebrate the, the Passover and the institution of the Last Supper. And Luke tells us there was a dispute that arose amongst the disciples. Can someone tell me what that dispute was? Thank you. Who is the greatest? And so 
Jesus is watching all the fellas, all the bubbas, they're coming in. Yummy food awaiting. They had it catered. It's all done. It's all on the table. They use Boston Market, Jerusalem Market. To qualify that, someone said, they had a market in Jerusalem like that, like Boston Market? (laughs) Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. It's only the disciples. It's a private meal. They're coming in off of the road. They're all sitting down going, oh, this appetite is amazing. Mussels from the Sea of Galilee. Oh, I could die for them. <laughs> Little necks, there they are. Oh. And they're all gathering around the table. And they're just like enjoying the meal. And in the midst of the supper, you say, could you please connect this to the text? Sure. Uh, Verse 2, during supper, Jesus goes like this. Stinky feet. You ever have teenagers? You know what stinky feet are. And Jesus is watching them. And none of them are doing anything. They're just all there, like just enjoying the meal with Jesus. The buds. And in the midst of the meal, Jesus gets up. Now, who are we talking about when we talk about Jesus? We're talking about the sovereign God. The God who made all things, keeps all things together, sustains all things by the power of his word. The word incarnate gets up. (laughs) It takes off his clothes, wraps a towel around him, grabs the water jug and the basin, and no one says a word. No one says, what are you doing? And then Jesus goes about washing stinky feet, and still no one says a word. Some of them are praying, saying, oh, don't tickle me, Jesus. Oh, that water's a little cold. They say nothing until they get to who? They get to Peter. Come, come let's, well, we'll connect to the text. Here we go. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We'll pick that up next week about the betrayal and all that. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. God is Jesus is sovereign. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I don't know how many disciples he got to. The text doesn't tell me. But it was more than one. Maybe many. And no one says a word. Until he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, (laughs) Peter's a classic. Came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing, say it with me, you do not understand. You do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. I'll leave that lesson to you. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never, until the end, the Greek, until the end of the age, you will never wash my feet. Yea, Peter. The first pope. Hey, got it right. Sorry. And Jesus says to him what? Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter gets religion. Just not my feet. I love me. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. All right. Well, just let the text speak for itself. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And verse 11 tells us who that one is. It's, it's Judas. And the lesson here for us is God is sovereign. God loves us. God redeems us and cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 9. And what Jesus is saying to Simon Peter is that you're saved. You've come to me. I've cleansed you from sin. But even if you're regenerated, you still, from time to time, have to have your feet washed. Why? Because you're walking in this world and you, and you choose to sin. But just know this, that if you do sin, you have someone to go to who, if you confess your sin, get the word there in 1 John 1, 9, will do what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so the lesson, the takeaway from us is, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God loves us. Yes, he's redeemed us. But the Christian walk, the walk of Christ, is to continually come to him, to continually confess our sins. Because 1 John also says that if we claim to be without sin, the truth is not in us, and we call God a what? Come back to the text. So when he washed his feet, he put on his outer garment, and he resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? So he said, you don't understand. Do you understand And the disciples are what? Still what? Clueless. (laughs) So Jesus got to lay it out for them. He said, do you understand? No. 
Do you understand now? No. He said, oh, Lord, Father, what have you given me? No. And he says, look, you call me Lord and teacher. I'm your leader. And you know what? You got that right. You got that right, guys. And the lesson for you is not to argue about who is the greatest or who's going to sit at my left hand and my right hand. The lesson here for you guys is to love each other and serve each other the way and through the example that I've given you. And Jesus says to them in rounding this thing out, Jesus says to them, this, if you do these things, what? You'll be blessed. If you do these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so the, the last thing we could say about the text here is that there's a blessing that leads to happiness and joy and peace in your life when you choose the way of the cross and offer yourself in humble service to the people that God has placed in your sphere of influence. Come with me, and we'll close out with Philippians chapter 2. While you're going there, you say, Oh, Conway, come on, preacher boy. This doesn't work in real life. Nancy and I know a small business owner. And the small business owner is operating in a secular environment. She has bills to pay and employees, clients. But her business is successful because ultimately she's not trying to make a buck. Although I think she's pretty wealthy and she could, should, you know. Anyway, I'll leave that blank. Should, should. She's very successful. But her attitude is not about making a buck. Her attitude is like, how can I serve you? How can I serve my employees? To the point, and this is, a, it blows my mind, it's extraordinary. To the point that some of her employees want to, want to take some of what she's doing and want to take something that she's established and bring it over here and plant it so it can be theirs. And, you know, I've, I've watched this person for years now, and, and when people do that to her, she only tries to serve them and bless them and gives them the answers and the resources and the contacts and the connections so that they can be successful. Is this person Christ-like or what? And that's in a secular business situation. I don't know how many times over the years that 
I've taught on this, and, and, and I, 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 you know, and if this is you, please come up and talk to me. We'll talk it out. And people will come up and talk to me and said, that, that's just not going to work in my company. I said, well, have you tried it? Oh, it ain't going to work. Have you tried it? Well, no, because I know it's just not going to work. And that's my challenge to you. Take away that if you're a director, if you're a manager, if you're a team leader, why not, why not, instead of taking the high road in the sense, I'm the boss, this is the way you got to do it. What about, what about taking the Jesus way? How can I serve you? How can I make you successful? How can I equip you? Isn't it different? It's an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't make any sense. And we need these type of leaders today. We need these type of leaders in our government. Instead of being, instead of being about power and authority and position and influence, how about we take care of the poor? How about we care for people? How about we pass legislation that does something? Oh. Cross the line. But how about it? Anyway. They'll edit that out, I guess. So, but Why can't we have that in the church? Why do, why do all the new movements that are coming along in church life, all the new movements, have to be about a charismatic person who wants authority and control over God's people and destroy local churches rather than serving and equipping people to be about the ministry of Jesus because that is the only ministry that we have, which is verses 18 and 19 of the text. We are sent as messengers. I'll close out with Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. So Paul puts the theological uh, connections behind John chapter 13. He connects it all together. And what does it look like in church life? What does it look like in a believer's life? John connects it all to, uh, uh, Paul connects it all together. Just like he's going to connect uh, when we close in three minutes, when we close with the Lord's table, John will connect it Paul will connect it all together in 1 Corinthians 11. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God anything to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Amen.